Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1657, 1657. Thank you for joining us today. And today, we have a hidden, <laughs> almost hidden, live stream recording for you. So uh, every now and again, Adam and I get together for a live stream at early morning hours. And we do publish it, but probably nobody hears it. Well, a few people do, but not many because of the time. Uh, so we will share that with you today. And on Wednesday, we have a treat for you. I uh, did an impromptu visit to mom's house. I uh, flew over to see her uh, this weekend, just uh, did a, a two-day, one-night visit, and uh, got mom to sit down and share some of her knowledge bombs on how she manages her rental properties and what her thoughts are about the market and uh, the change in the property tax law and why that is so significant and the upcoming changes in the overall federal tax laws and what she's doing with her portfolio and what I'm doing with my portfolio to prepare for that. You must listen to that and we will have that episode for you on Wednesday. But today, Adam and I will take over and here we go. Adam is here with me and he had a great idea as always and that was to talk <laughs> about natural disasters, cash flow and the like. Adam, let's go ahead and get into it. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing much better this morning than I was a few days ago. Actually, that's that's what I meant to start with. And I thought it was probably the inspiration for your, your topic choice today. And that is, of course, Adam, if you do not already know, lives in the wonderful city of Austin, Texas. But it has been rather chilly. And that is a picture of his backyard on the screen. Um, Adam, you were without power. You were without water. I mean, what the heck? Well, the good news was for me, we were only without power for maybe an hour or so. And I think it's because there's a fire station about five blocks away and we're on the same grid. My parents didn't have power for 36 hours, um, but our pipes froze because of this storm that you're seeing here on Sunday night and they weren't able to restore water. And then so from Sunday night through Wednesday afternoon, I would walk over to my neighbor's house and get a five gallon jug that we had filled so that we could have drinking water and we could, you know, easily flush toilets and all those fun things. And then on Wednesday afternoon, the entire zip code lost water. Um, and then my parents' zip code lost water too, because they only live about five miles from us. Um, and then the city didn't have water. If you look at the map on the right there, all of that pink 
is a complete water outage. Um, wow. And so that's about, you know, 70% of the people who live in Austin there because Austin's very concentrated south and north. And then uh, Sunday evening, everything finally thawed because it got up to 70 degrees on Sunday. And uh, thankfully, none of our pipes burst and we were able to get running water. But there was still a boil water notice until yesterday midday because they were finally able to get enough water in the system that uh, it could test clean. <laughs> that is that is just really incredible. And it just it just let this be a lesson for everybody here. You know, and, and Austin is just one of the areas I and mean, people in Dallas were affected people in you know various areas of Texas. First of all, the unexpected uh, weather, right? That's the first thing. But just the general look, I host another podcast, many of you may know. Uh, and we've got almost, I think, 300 episodes or so. It's called the Holistic Survival Show. And the tagline is protecting the people, places and profits you care about in uncertain times. And it really is important to be uh you know, be basically prepared. Um, one of the reasons I got a little bit bored with that show, frankly, was that I was interviewing all these survivalists and preppers, and they take it from the, some of them, take it from the point of just being responsibly prepared, right, uh, for major inconveniences or disaster to making it a whole lifestyle, right? And and I, I sort of jokingly said, you know, some of these people are so busy preparing for the end of the world and making sure that they will never die, that they will forget to live in the first place because their whole life is about prepping. And, and that's like a sickness, frankly. But, you know, having spending a measly $300 to have some of the basic things that you need to be responsibly prepared is just prudent. Okay. It's just prudent. You, everybody should do this so that you're not a burden on the system. And so that you're, you know, minimally inconvenienced. Adam, what did you notice? And by the way, we're going to talk about real estate investing and how this ties in, but just since this is a, a very topical thing right now, um, what did you notice? Uh, I mean, did you feel prepared or very unprepared or, you know, you've now just to give background to you're married, you've got four children uh, and, um, you know, just give us a, a sense of how, how you and your family felt and, and how you dealt with this. We were pretty good. We had some couple gallons of water for drinking we had my wife has so much food in the house all the time that you know with four kids who are constantly hungry um, the the food part wasn't a problem um we were, the hardest part honestly is flushing toilets i mean this it's miserable it's you know on wednesday you, when you it, had to fill them with a five gallon jug right and then you yeah, I mean, it, flush, takes, right? it takes about a gallon and a half to two gallons of water to properly flush a toilet yep uh, and so on Wednesday, whenever the neighbor's water went out too, it became a time to boil, time to melt snow situation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we were melting snow and uh, doing that. And so that part was really, really not fun. Yeah. Uh, and so we weren't expecting to get water back until actually today, yesterday, or maybe today. And so we went up to my sister-in-law's house on Saturday night and spent the night there. And, you know, we're able to shower for the first time in a week and, you know, enjoy. 
Yeah. <laughs> Usually running water for a day. Very you know, first world problems, obviously, you know, yeah. not running water. You know, you know what I was thinking about you? I was thinking, I wonder if it would have been warm enough to literally just pack the 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 toilet closet, the water closet above the toilet with snow, let it melt, and then you know, you couldn't use the toilet until the snow melted. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I actually loaded a couple of them down with it, but they uh-huh. did and melt very quick. Yeah. It's not hot enough inside the house, and then it uh, it was really fluffy snow. It was it was, that was the worst part. It was it was it snowed, and we had like six inches, and you couldn't even make a decent snowball with it. I mean, it right. was it was it was horrible. Well, they it were was, it was very um, you had uh, very uh, very dry. Yeah, very dry snow, which is great for skiing. Did you do any skiing? <laughs> they did sledding. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> There's no skiing in here, the slight hill country. Yeah. Well, folks, let me just talk about uh, uh, prepping for just a moment, like just simple stuff. I'm not going to, I mean, this is a big subject. You could, like I said, you could spend your whole life on this, which is a mistake. But look, one gallon of water per day per person in the household. The easiest way to do this is simply subscribe to the water service where they bring you those five gallon jugs. And what I do is, you know, they give you a water cooler. You pay and you'll pay, you'll overpay. You'll pay about $6 a jug, whereas you can fill it up at the store for a buck 75. Um, but uh, you just have them deliver nine or 10 of those five gallon jugs, okay, at a time. And, and you know, then after you get the initial delivery of like 10 of those, okay, you've got 50 gallons of water, do not place them on concrete. They cannot be placed on concrete because the concrete leaches through the bottle into the water. So you must either put them on a pallet if you're going to store them in the garage or on tile or a regular floor. Don't put them on the concrete directly, okay? And um, these weigh about 43 pounds each. And, um, And then, you know, you'll maybe use three a month. And so after you get that initial big delivery from the water service company, you know, Sparklets or Nestle or whatever, you know, Crystal Water, I don't know what they're called. There's there's a bunch of them out there. Uh, then you just get three delivered every month and you rotate the stock and you use the oldest water first, okay? So, you know, uh, do that. And then, you know, just basic food. I mean, you know, you, you buy the, the salmon in the can from Costco and, uh, and, you know, don't depend on frozen food because if your power goes out, obviously you're freezer's not going to work. Um, I recently got a generator since I now live in Florida in uh, hurricane country. I've never used it, but I, I do have it ready. And I have a couple of big gas tanks. I keep them empty because of safety. Gasoline is obviously very dangerous to keep around. Uh, but the minute there's a hurricane coming, I'm going to go fill those jugs up, right? And and then I'll be ready. Uh, and just some basic stuff, okay? And, uh, you know, there, there's way more to it. Listen to the Holistic Survival Show uh, on any podcast platform and you can learn more. But Adam, any thoughts on that? And then let's get into it. Yeah, I mean, that's good advice. We And it's important to remember that it doesn't just have to be water. It can be any liquid. Like we had we had juices and milk and all that kind of stuff for the kids too. Um, so we basically, my wife and I drank the water, the kids drank the juices and all of that stuff. So um, that was kind of how we did it. But the reason that I wanted to even talk about this today was on Sunday night, whenever it, uh, when our pipes froze, you know, there's obviously the threat of a burst pipe 
and mm-hmm. we didn't know at that point how much it would cost because you know plumbers were going to be in extremely high demand right because you know, pipes burst all over the city you know we didn't know how long it would be we didn't know how much it was going to cost my wife was able to take the whole week off work because the roads weren't safe to drive on and so it really kind of got me thinking about the cash flow part because mm-hmm. you know we have rental properties now and you know it was if the pipes had burst it probably would have cost about 2 months of cash flow Mm-hmm. Right. You know, well, if, but the, the insurance, you have insurance for that. I mean, you'll have a deductible, of course, and then you may have to argue with the insurance company to get them to cover it. But yeah. a, a pipe breaking is pretty obviously an insurance claim. Yeah, but the problem is your insurance is uh, one, your deductible is 1% of the home value. <laughs> and so... Well, that, no, 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 that depends on your policy. That varies. Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure it's 1%. But anyway... It would have been pricey to to pay and do all of that. And so I, it was very nice to know, like, even if Aaron had had to take unpaid time off or if her job had just been shut down, like during the pandemic, you know, a lot of people's jobs were shut down. The cash flow part would have would have brought us through it pretty nice. You know, it would have been wouldn't have been perfect. You know, right now we are still building up our portfolio, but it would have been a, a big, big help that we wouldn't have gotten. And so that was uh, kind of the one thing, one of the things I was thinking about primarily when it came to doing this. And so we also, but that also led me into thinking about the importance of commandment number six, I believe, which is thou shalt diversify. Right. Because this is, we're in three markets right now, about to be in four. This is a picture, not of one of our rental properties, but one of our investment counselors rental properties. And Jackson, Mississippi, where we have properties had had snow, yeah. you know, could have had damage to these properties. Um, as far as I know, ours came out unscathed, but there could have been damage. It was snowing, and it's Jackson, Mississippi, isn't fully used to that. And and let me just uh, give the listeners some context on that. You know, if you if you haven't followed my work for the last eighteen years or so, um, uh, just uh, know that we have something that uh, one of our core pieces of content is called the Ten Commandments of Successful Investing. And Adam referred to commandment number six, thou shalt diversify. And you want to take the most historically proven asset class, income property, also happens to be the most the uh, most tax-favored asset class in America. Taxes are typically the single largest expense in anybody's life. And, um, uh, and you want to diversify geographically. And we say be in at least three markets, not more than five. Okay, so uh, so go ahead with that theme, Adam. Yeah, not 17 either, right, Jason? No, that was one of my <laughs> big mistakes. And uh, I, I freely admit uh, that mistake I made, which was over-diversifying. When I started investing nationwide back in 2004 or so, uh, you know, it's like going to the all-yeat buffet when you're hungry, right? Your eyes are bigger than your stomach. And I started buying every property everywhere. And that was a bad, it wasn't bad to buy so many properties. I mean, I made money on them. They've been great. But I should have focus them into three to five markets. And at the the peak of my insanity, okay, I was in 11 states and 17 cities. And it made it very difficult to manage all of that. So for many years, I've been unwinding that portfolio and trying to concentrate it more. But most people are making the mistake of being in just one market. And it's mostly the wrong market because it's typically the market in which they live, which may or may not be a good place to invest. And they never ask themselves that question. Uh, Or if they do, 
they look at it from the point of, oh, there's all these construction cranes all over. It's a growing city. Uh, that's not enough information, folks. It's not even close. Uh, and then they they rarely think of the rent-to-value ratios being desirable. They rarely think of, is the city or that jurisdiction, is it landlord-friendly versus being tenant-friendly? You know, as, as landlords, as providers of rental housing, we want uh, a, a legal and a regulatory climate that is friendly to our cause so that we are incentivized to provide rental housing. So if someone doesn't keep their word, if they break the contract, if they don't pay the rent or they do something else that violates the lease, you can kick them out and get someone who will pay the rent. You know, you, you can't run a business if people don't uphold their contracts. Society falls apart when people don't uphold their contracts and keep their word. So, uh, you know, there's, there's many things to it, but check out the Creating Wealth podcast for, for more on that. Uh, Adam, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think it was you who posted, uh, it was either you or I saw it, it was somebody posted the thing saying, I'm in California, what do I do if my tenant's not paying? Right. His response was, cry. Yeah, cry. <laughs> That's not all you can do. Yeah, you can't do much in, in, in the Socialist Republics of California, New York, etc. Those landlord or those tenant friendly places, you know, you go into court and try and collect your money and you're instantly thought of as the big evil land baron. And the reality is, you know, many landlords are struggling, right? Uh, men, now, many are doing great. I mean, income property is the most historically proven asset class in, in the world. Uh, but, um, you know, there are times where we've all struggled, right? And uh, and you, you just got to have the courts uphold contracts for you. You know, it's, it's just, it has to be that way. And And it's not even that you actually need to ever go to court. Maybe you'll never need it. But the tenants usually understand the vibe of a place, if you will, the vibe, right? Is this a place that, you know, keeps people to their word? Or is it a place that, you know, you can get away with murder, right? So, you know, and you have this like lawlessness, like socialist republics of California, New York, Oregon, etc. So one of the things that I started thinking about was what if all of my properties had been in Jackson, Mississippi, and they all had issues and my tenants couldn't go to work and they couldn't pay their rent that month. And you know, how important it is to be spread out across temperatures, across, you know, different industries. That way, you know, if somebody's working at a port um, near Jackson and they, you know, they'll have a completely different um, thing than if someone's working at, you know, a manufacturing plant in Alabama, you know, those kind of things. So diversifying geographically, diversifying economically. Um, and so I started thinking about how are ways if I needed money to pay for the burst pipes, either in my own property or rental property, how could I get money for life events? The first is if I had stocks and bonds, I have to sell them. Um, you know, with dividend stocks, sometimes you can get your dividend, but you don't know, you know, you can't count on it happening right when you need it. You have to sell it. What if you have cryptos? You have to sell. You can't take out a loan on your crypto stock. With real estate, I can hold and I can collect rent. I know at the beginning. And you can refinance to yeah, raise or, money. Or refinance. That's not going to be the most uh, expedient way of getting the money, but I can. But I know at the beginning of the month, I'm going to get cash flow. It's going to help me through. I could sell it if I really wanted to, but I don't have to. 
I'm able to hold on to it and work through and get the cash flow from there. So this, this is the slide that I should have put up at the beginning. Commandment number six, thou shalt diversify geographically. It is incredibly important. This, this event kind of reminded me how, how important this commandment is. We don't talk about it a ton. You know, most people like um, number three and number five, not gambling right. and uh, being a direct investor. Right. But this one really kind of threw out the diversify um, geographically. So yeah, commandment number three is, is thou shalt maintain control. That seems to resonate a lot with people. Um, but uh, just a couple things on this. If you want to just go back to that last slide, if you would, Adam, um, I, I want to just say something here because this is this is an important thing. Um, the The biggest destroyer of wealth is divorce. Okay, that's the biggest destroyer of wealth. Now, most people think, well, you know, they're upset with their ex. They're like, you know, he got half or she got half. And, uh, you know, everyone's mad at their ex, right? But really, when you look at the, the main reason divorce is such a big destroyer of wealth is you, you realize that it forces people to sell assets at inopportune times. And that's really what could happen when you don't follow my 10 commandments of successful investing. And this one specifically, you know, thou shalt be uh, not, thou shalt diversify. The next one is thou shalt be area agnostic, which is kind of a, a corollary to it, if you will. But you never want to be forced to sell assets at inopportune times. You know, income property is a game of staying power. And the, the person who can stay in the game wins the game. Uh, by the way, also, uh, we see some comments coming in. There's just a couple because we didn't ask for them. Uh, please make comments, ask questions. Uh, but no matter what, before you can make a comment, ask a question, or even keep watching, you must go smash the like button. So what give it a like that? right now. Like, just click that like button for us. We appreciate it. And also comment uh, down below and tell us where you're watching from. Uh, we love to see where people are located. Um, and a couple comments here, Adam. Do you want to read those off? Yeah. So Julie says, with the mainstreaming of digital smart contracts, all of these issues will be a thing of the past. And Julie, I have to disagree with that. I mean, right now we have the contracts. You can show the contracts to courts in some states, and it, it just doesn't matter. She's not talking about that. She's talking about cryptocurrency and smart oh, okay. contracts. So um, I will... Uh, sort of half agree with Adam and half agree with you. I do agree that the smart contracts do solve some problems, but if you've read the Bitcoin standard and if you listen to my interview with um, uh, Saifedean Amos, who's the author of the Bitcoin standard recently on my podcast, uh, a, a lot of people I think are, you know, and I, I'm taking the middle ground here, Julie. I just want you to know that I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not, totally one way or the other on this, okay? But a lot of people are overestimating the value of smart contracts and the blockchain. I think they're valuable, okay? And I think they will definitely play a big part in society, uh, but don't give them too much credit. They don't solve every problem because you still have what's called the Oracle problem. And that's the person who enters the data in to create the smart contract. You still have lots of issues. Okay. And I've done, I, you know, I host another podcast called the CryptoCast, and I've done a few different episodes on how 
uh, the blockchain and cryptocurrency will impact real estate, blockchain, real estate title. I recently did a show that will be airing soon on um, smart domain names and blockchain-based domain names and URLs. And, you know, there, there's a million applications, but some of these are just way overestimated. I, I'm just going to tell you, you know, it's, it's sort of like uh, if you look back to 1998, 1999, the year 2000, you know, we look back 21 years ago now, right? And everybody thought you could just have a company and put .com at the end of the name and suddenly <laughs> you'd be super successful, right? And, you know, they had all these like really stupid ideas, frankly. Um, Webvan, right, was a really just a dumb idea. And, and not that grocery delivery is a dumb idea, but the idea of, you know, building these warehouses and buying a fleet of vans was totally unnecessary. All you need is Instacart, okay, which is what you have now. You have an infrastructure of grocery stores already. And then, of course, you have to mention the, the sock puppet for the pets.com, right? Just ridiculousness. Okay, so don't, I just want to give you a word of caution. I'm, I'm not saying it's not valuable. I'm just saying don't overestimate it. Okay. All right, Adam, next one. Yeah, so Eccentric says, George Gammon has recently said, if T-bills go negative, short-term interest rates will have to rise. What are your thoughts on this possibility? You know, um, I, I love George. He's a great friend of mine. And, and I agree conceptually with that. However, um, if you just look at the past really 20 years or especially the last 13 years since the Great Recession, okay, um, we are in a world where the powers that be, the two most powerful entities the human race has ever known, governments and central banks, have found ways to defy gravity, to defy the laws of physics, to defy mathematics, okay, and that makes total sense. I agree, right? But rates should be much higher now. We have artificially low interest rates already. We don't need the treasury to change, okay? We, we already have a, a nonsensical economy and a nonsensical marketplace. So uh, they, they have just found ways to... Uh, beat the system to defy gravity. Um, one way, of course, is the, the U.S. has the reserve currency of the world and the largest military the human race has ever known to keep it that way. The U.S. reserve currency status is not going away anytime soon, folks. Sorry to, you know, if, if someone out there listening believes that, you're, you're just, um, it's a fantasy, okay? It's, the U.S. is going to keep that status for quite a while, I think. Uh, but uh, that's a whole nother discussion. Lest we go down a tangent, <laughs> tangent alert. Here, wait, Adam, let's do the tangent alert. Tangent alert. Okay, go ahead. First off, they have to get there and then they would have to go negative. And then if they do rise, the, I mean, that just shows you that it's now's a great time to lock in your interest rate, honestly. Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, but even if they do rise, I mean, it will, if interest rates rise, it will start slowing down the you know rise in prices, and then it'll all work itself out and end up. I mean, I have properties with over six percent interest rates that you know cash flow really well. Um, I just don't have enough equity in them right now to make it worth refinancing. So you know you don't need three percent interest rates 
to you know do really well in real estate. And Adam, a couple points on that are super, super important. Okay, really important points here, folks. Are you listening to these really important points? Okay, here's what you need to know. What Adam said, absolutely. But what he didn't say is another knock-on effect of higher interest rates is that it cools down the buying market and it increases the renting market. So there's upward pressure on rents with higher interest rates. And that will cause a bigger housing shortage. Why, you ask? This is a prediction I've been making for several months now. And I, I believe I'm the first one to predict this. You know, to uh, put this, get this down uh, on a clay tablet, okay, or stone tablet, okay? Uh, and, and that prediction is that all these millions of people who have refinanced their home or are about to refinance their home and have purchased new homes, they have these incredibly artificially low interest rates for three decades, okay? They, they don't have to make the last payment on that loan until 2051. Just think of the significance of how much it's going to change in the world by 2051. You know what the incentive is going to be? The incentive is going to be for them to keep those properties, and it is going to cause a larger inventory shortage, okay? And what that means is there's going to be people, instead of selling their property, they're going to stay in their property, and they're going to improve their property. They're going to add a room. They're going to spend more money at Lowe's and Home Depot. Maybe that's a stock tip for you, okay? Uh, contractors are going to do very well who do additions and add on to properties and improve properties. You know, they're going to replace the kitchen and do a new kitchen and a new master bath. Oh, but you can't say master because that word's oppressive. Um, so we live in a ridiculous world, folks. Ridiculous culture. Okay, go ahead, Adam. I couldn't remember. I don't remember what they do call it now. Is it main? Main bathroom? <laughs> Some stupid stupidity, right? The big, you can't call the it a family bathroom. room either because that's oppressive to people who don't have traditional families like me. I feel offended. Don't call it a family <laughs> so, room. Yeah, so let me finish up the diversity, diversifying thing real quick, and then we'll get to some of the other questions. Um, right. So comes to diversifying. Um, this is the areas, these are the areas in the country where we currently have properties or have recently had properties. And so you're able to spread out north to south, east to west a little bit. And so, you know, you, you're staying away from this area over here where, you know, life isn't too good for landlords. You're staying away from this area up here in the northeast where life isn't too good for landlords. And you're staying in the markets that are landlord friendly, that do have good rent to value. You know, even if your rent to value isn't below one, right now it's a good enough rent to value to get you a, a good solid return. We have seen the increase in prices that have led to slightly tighter returns for the first year, maybe. But, you know, it is there. And so I looked, I was curious. So I looked up the monthly weather right now for February. For each uh, for each mark for three for four different markets. So I have you know Jackson, Mississippi that I showed the picture of the snow. Got Birmingham. Um, if you look Jackson uh, this 
the week of the 15th was, you know, anywhere from 28 degrees to 48. Uh, Birmingham was 41 to 53. Um, Charlotte, North Carolina, where we have properties, was 40 to, you know, or 39 to 48. And then in Port Charlotte, it was 82 to 71, you know, 80, in the 80s or high 70s. So you can really see as you stretch itself out, you've got markets where it gets cold, markets where it doesn't. It just as you diversify, you give yourself different scenarios and different uh, environments. And, but but you know, don't be terribly afraid of cold weather. Like just, just oh don't, yeah, don't no, let's no, make the no, decision just, for you because you know, I mean, for example, Indianapolis has been our longest running market ever, and you know, we we've had investors, including myself, who've done very well in Indianapolis, uh, but. By and large, most of the action is in the southeast. That's really where the action is. Adam, I do want to explain one thing that you just said, and that is the rent-to-value ratio. Okay, you just sort of mentioned RV ratio, but some people don't know what that is. So what we target is when you look at the value of the property, and by the way, this is called the RV ratio or the rent-to-value ratio. I want to make sure you notice it's not called the rent to what I paid for the house in 1992 ratio. Okay. It's called the rent to value ratio, current value. And um, ideally you want to get somewhere near 1% every month. So if the property is $150,000 and you can get 1500 a month or close to that, you're going to do pretty well. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, so I wanted to, you want to take some of this, uh, yeah. like, B tools question over here? Okay, how about this one? Yeah, for mortgages and forbearance, how long before forbearance ends do people start to sell to get out of the property before having to pay the mortgage again? Weeks, months? And this is something that uh, Sarah, one of our investment counselors, uh, told us about in our Voxer group, where one of her clients had a fantastic forbearance deal with the with the bank whenever they wanted them to come out of forbearance. I believe the bank modified their loan to drop their interest rate, tacked on the missed payments to the end, and just kind of let them, let them ride it out. Because right now the banks are still being very kind to borrowers as long as the eviction moratorium is in place. I mean, it's they're trying to keep people in their homes as best they can. So there's a very good chance that people aren't going to have to sell to get out because they'll be able to just, you know, pick up where they left off once they get their their next job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, I, look, at I, I don't think this is a thing to worry about in a big way. You know, the mortgage delinquencies have declined. Forbearances, people in forbearance has declined. And the market is booming. Oh, there is a there is a structural housing shortage going on, and it is a massive shortage. The builders cannot keep up. The building supplies are scarce. Um, uh, frankly, you know, from a, from a uh, look at we run a referral network, uh, basically acting as, as something of a broker in essence, and um, this is a very difficult market uh, in which to operate for us. Okay, we like a more calm market right? This is not my favorite market by any means. Uh, so uh, don't think that I love this, okay? It, I don't. I would much rather have a more even keel market where there's a reasonable amount of supply. Right now, we're in a situation where we can't satisfy the demand, where we hear from people who are disappointed constantly. 
okay, uh, that they can't get a, a property they want to buy, you know, multiple offers. It's, it's, and it's, it's very hard work because everything's a rush, rush, rush uh, to get a deal done. Uh, so, um, you know, it's, it's not our favorite market. And the reason I say that is because people accuse me of being too bullish, but I am bullish uh, on, on prices for the next year at least. I think we've got, uh, we've got a very rosy outlook for the appreciation side of the market. Okay. What are your and thoughts on I want to get into uh, real quick, what, just based on what you said, I found uh, this chart from, uh, I believe it was the, yeah, from realtor.com and Keeping Current Matters. This is the change in housing inventory compared to this time last year. And Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the United States as a whole is down 42.6%. Yeah. Uh, oh, folks, yep. if everybody comes out of forbearance, and sells their property the day after, you know, God forbid they should have to actually make a mortgage payment, right? So the, if they come out of forbearance and the next day they put their property up for sale, it will not satisfy the demand. Not even close. Okay. Not even close. So th this, this doomsday scenario is just not, I mean, look, there will be correction. There's no question. There has to be a correction eventually, but it's not on the horizon yet. Yeah. Even if you tack on, I think right now forbearance is somewhere in the 6% range at most six, six and a half percent. I mean, that doesn't even take you out of the 30% <laughs> down right. inventory. So totally. I wanted to, since you talked about the inventory shortage, I figured I would show people this to. Adam, thank you for that. That's a great chart. It's really, uh, it's really amazing. Now, uh, is this a chart of the uh, election? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, actually, that might be a chart of the reality of the election, but not what we turned out with. <laughs> Just, is it time for the next 30 day ban, Jason? Is that what I mean? Yeah, that's right. I, I can't even, I can't even mention the word. I, I better spell it. E L E C T I O. I, I better spell it. Or, or, you know, I could jokingly say like, well, that has a sexual reference. So I probably can't say that either, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, it's incredible, but we won't go there because, you know, hashtag censorship. Go ahead. Yeah, so now we can go to the um, Abby's comment there if you want about what are your thoughts on multifamily housing market over 2021 and 2022. And I believe you've talked about this a bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I think that low density multifamily housing in the suburban linear markets is in pretty good shape. Uh, but remember, this uh, rent collection problem is much more pronounced in multifamily than it is in single family, okay? And, uh, you know, I've owned two big multifamily uh, projects. I have a small one now and also a mobile home park that I guess you can consider that multifamily too. And then I have had a bunch of single family homes for many, many years. Uh, I think single family is just the most historically proven, easy to manage asset class. Um, the multifamily, certainly there are opportunities, uh, but if you're going to do it, number one, have experience and know what you're doing. And when you say multifamily, I don't know how many units you're talking about. I've had uh, complexes. I own two with a, a client of mine. We bought them together, 125 units and then 139 unit complex. And let me tell you something. When you have an apartment 
it is like running a business. It's not like running an investment, okay? You, you will have Yelp reviews, Google reviews, just like as if you had a business, like a restaurant with reviews on there and tenants don't like paying rent, so they say bad things about you, okay? Uh, and um, they talk to each other and they gang up on you and they have rent strikes and they do all kinds of nasty stuff. Whereas in single family, it's one one off, one tenant at a time. And is this German, this next comment? I believe so. And I, uh, I do not know German. What does that say? We don't know what this says, folks. It might say something dirty. Uh, maybe Ashley can read it. She speaks a few languages. Yeah. So let's just go through, um, you know, we talked about the changing, the change in housing inventory. And mm -hmm. if, you look at, uh, if you look at this, the change in housing inventory, and I'm going to show two, there's one in North Carolina and one in Florida. North Carolina has seen a 54.4% drop in housing inventory across the state. Um, and we have some properties there. We don't have a ton right now because they keep selling. Um, and so, uh, let's see, there's a North Carolina. Um, this is just outside Charlotte. And right now, what you really need to remember, Jason was talking about the rent to value ratio and how you wanna get close to the 1%, but with rents lagging behind home prices, like they have historically, like they pretty much always will, the rents in Charlotte, if you recall from about four or five live streams ago, Charlotte was in the top 10 markets in the country in appreciation for 2020. So the rents have really not been able to keep up so far. So I've been telling people for your first year, you know, you look at this pro forma and your first year, you might get that 4%, but there is a very strong likelihood that in one year, when you go to re-up this lease, you're looking at, you know, potentially a $50, $7,500 rent that you can raise it um, just to get yourself up to market, which will take your return, which will make it much, much better um, than it is at the time. Yeah. So this is one, it's a $282,000 house. It rents for $1,850. Projected rent. Uh, yes, estimated rent. Um, estimated cash flow of $273 and an estimated cash on cash return of 4% with a total return on investment of 30%. And that, you know, that, that is a nice looking, high quality, substantial rental property. Yeah. You know, the, these are the types of properties, folks, where, yes, you pay a little bit of a premium, you sacrifice some cash flow, but you get such good quality tenants, you know, uh, by and large. You're just going to have good experiences with these higher quality class A properties. Yeah. And, you know, you factor in if you look at if Charlotte does what it did last year, the assumption would change the real estate appreciation rate to I believe it was around 11 percent last year. So it would <laughs> it would essentially double your appreciation and your total return on investment would skyrocket. Yeah. You'd Absolutely. be up in the 40s probably at that point. So um, this is one here in uh, there, the Charlotte area. And then there's one in uh, Port Charlotte where we've got a bit of inventory right now, I believe. Um, although a lot of our Florida inventory just disappeared a day or two ago. So, uh, you know, in Port Charlotte. Because it's selling, you mean, right? When you yeah, say it wasn't wiped out or anything. It just disappeared from our system because they all okay. sold. Um, you know, this one starts out at 245000 
Southwest Florida, the whole Port Charlotte, Cape Coral, Northport area seems to be all around about 240, 250,000 now. Um, it's estimated to rent at uh, 1675. There's an estimated cash flow of, oh, there it is, $280, uh, 5% cash on cash, and a 31% total return on investment. So, you know, and, and I looked at uh, Florida's rent history, you know, the rents that our providers have been getting over the past two years, I believe, almost closing in on three years. And the two years ago, the monthly rent per square foot, which you see here at $1.08, was $0.93. Cents. Mm -hmm. Rents have gone up 16 eight, eight, sixteen to 18% in the last two years. So they're, they're trying to keep up with the price. <laughs> yeah. It is uh, the, the market. By, by the way, you know, we really need to start announcing this every time because this is what we need, folks. You know, ask not what uh, our, our team can do for you, but what you can do for our team. <laughs> <How's that? laughs> uh, and well, this is what we can do for you. But if you happen to be watching this and you are a property provider, if you are a wholesaler, if you do fix and flips, if you're a developer and you're building new properties, we can sell them for you. We have thousands of buyer leads uh, and we can refer investors to you uh, that will, will buy properties. Uh, so this is what we do. We work with different uh, pro property providers and markets that we vet and like in different parts of the country and we refer investors to them and uh and uh you know we we can make your sales process much much easier so let's talk about uh, builders and flippers um the chief economist at the national association of home builders came out and said builders report concerns over increasing lumber and other construction costs and delays in obtaining building materials rising interest rates will also erode housing affordability in 2021 as inventories of existing homes remain low. So we've talked about lumber prices before. How bad are they? The, this is lumber futures. Softwood lumber prices jumped a record 73% on a year-on-year -year basis in January, according to the Labor Department. I mean, look at this chart. <laughs> this chart, I mean, this right here is June 2020. That is shocking. So these are lumber prices for softwood lumber, which is what's used for home construction. Yep. And this was April, whenever everything was, uh, you know, yep. we were all going to die. Yep. Uh, this was During April. The pandemic. <laughs> and so, I mean, I mean, even before that, you know, all throughout uh, the first half of 2020, the highest it got was, what, 450, 475. And now this one, I, I got this about four or five days ago, and it was at $983 or $993 per thousand uh, feet. So, I mean, it's it's getting up there, and it's it's really hard to not have a rising home prices if you can't buy, you know, your material for less. Yeah. This, this is the problem. The builders have a material shortage. They can't meet the demand. We can't meet the demand. Uh, there's just so much demand in the system. And that's why, uh, you know, if you can get properties now, get them uh, because uh, just a, a structural shortage. So here is what has happened to the supply. And Adam is mentioning lumber, but it's not just lumber, folks. It's 
so many of the materials used in home construction. Here is an illustration of what has happened. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and we also still haven't filled up the you know the worker pool from the Great Recession. I mean, we're still down construction workers. So, you know, it's really hard to build, to really ramp up your home building if, you know, you're having to walk on to other job sites and hire people away. Um, there's just not enough people there because when the housing crash hit, they went and found other jobs and they didn't come back. So that's what I've got. Good stuff. Okay, well, let's uh, get some of these questions and take them care of. And um, what do we have here? We have uh, here. Peter asked, what are your thoughts on the rising 10-year yields and rising interest rates? Um, we talked, we touched on this a little bit earlier. I'm not too concerned. I mean, rates might tick up, but we're, I don't think we're going to get above 4 to 4.5% this year with everything we're seeing. Yeah. And again, uh, Peter, we did address that question essentially earlier in this broadcast. So uh, just go back if you just joined us and uh, listen to it because we went into the whole thing about how those rates affect housing supply and how they affect rents and so forth. So just uh, please make sure you listen to that. Uh, Curtis, one of our clients says, hey, hey, Curtis, how you doing? Um, there's Sarah, one of our team members, and she's been buying properties like crazy lately. Uh, and then uh, you skipped over the gold color there. It said yeah. time to buy acreage of woods, forest, and buy a mill. Small mills are making a comeback and making money. Well, a couple things. Number one, you have to bank on lumber prices staying this high, which I don't know enough about the lumber industry to say whether you should or not. Um, number two, you have to be able to buy acreage that has wood that's you know actually you know, harvestable. You know they have to be grown enough to to get there, and then you have to be willing to get into that industry. And I'm not. I'd rather buy the property. And and you know that that's a business, okay? I mean that's a whole different game. And if you go into a business that you don't know anything about, you know, assuming you haven't been in that business before, you're asking for a steep learning curve and a very expensive learning curve. That's just the way it works usually. Uh, and also, you know, you don't get the advantage of three decade long artificially cheap fixed rate financing. You know, income property has such special characteristics, and that's why it's the most historically proven asset class in the world and the most tax-favored asset class in America. Um, and here you mentioned lumber and copper. Yeah, absolutely right. Dr. Copper is a uh, proxy for uh, a lot of commodities and uh, a, an indicator on the economy. So, you know, houses use copper wire. They use petroleum products, they use lumber, they use concrete, they use glass, they use steel. These are all the ingredients of a house. Um, Adam? Centric asks, do you think the California housing prices are sustainable or do you predict a huge crash? Yeah. So with California, of course, uh, it's, it's the most populous state in the country. It's managed as a left-wing disaster. Um, California, New York have so many problems. It's just, um, it's just sort of incomprehensible <laughs> in a way. Um, and when you say California prices, I assume you're focusing on the major, you know, cities, right? San Francisco, LA, San Diego, et cetera, right? Um, and, uh, those are very cyclical markets. No, I do not think they are sustainable, um, especially if they are high density areas, uh, and um, the, these really expensive areas, one thing that, um, that COVID-1984 has taught everybody 
is that you don't need to live in these expensive cities with high taxes. Uh, people are fleeing them and uh, they can work anywhere. The remote working revolution is definitely upon us. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just not important to be in those expensive areas anymore. We've all come to realize that. Spartacus 2020 says you can get a loan on your crypto in minutes or collect yield. Yeah, was- yeah, you you can. There are some creative things you can do with crypto, but remember uh, that loan to value ratio is low. It's only about 50%. And you can get, in essence, what is in essence a margin call, where uh, if uh, those crypto prices go down, that loan evaporates. It just does not have the characteristics of income property. It, you know, you get a yield on income property by renting it out. And, you know, the, the other beautiful thing about income property is you can renegotiate the deal all along the way. You know, in most things, when you make the buy, so, you know, you go buy some Bitcoin or Ethereum, that's the price. You've locked it in. You bought it at that price. It's done. The deal's done. But with income property, you can constantly renegotiate the deal. And, I, you know, I've been teaching this for years, but here's essentially what I mean. There's much more on the Creating Wealth podcast about this, where you can refinance the property and make the whole complexion of the deal different later. You can uh, improve the property. You can creatively market the property and change the rental income t- characteristics. Sometimes you can add income to the property by adding other components that become rentable. You can go get a cost segregation analysis and you can reduce your taxes dramatically. There are just so many beautiful things you can do with income property. It's a multi-dimensional asset class. It has very, very special characteristics that other investments simply do not have. And I'm not saying you can't make money in crypto. I dabble in it myself, okay? Uh, But it just, you know, it's a very new asset class. It doesn't have a history that goes back, you know, a couple thousand years like income property does. So, um, you know, much, much different. Adam, wrap it up for us. Anything else? That's all I got for today. All right. Well, folks, um, go to pandemicinvesting.com and you can get a free book there. Uh, and, uh, you know, whoops, uh, let me get the right thing on the screen here for you. Uh, and you can get a free book there, a free mini book uh, that, you know, no strings attached. Just, you know, uh, you'll get an email download right away. And uh, that can help you invest during these uh, very crazy and uncertain times. We examine a lot of the different aspects of how, uh, how the pandemic has changed the landscape for investing and for income property. So pandemicinvesting.com, get that free mini book uh, right now. Of course, our main website, jasonhartman.com, lots of info there, lots of info on the Creating Wealth podcast and our YouTube channel. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us today. And I want to wish everybody happy investing. We're here to answer questions and uh, you can reach out to one of our team members, our investment counselors at any time uh, in the U.S. You can also call us at 1-800-HARTMAN or uh, just visit the website internationally. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, helping you create a great uh, income property portfolio. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 
Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Oh, 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 o